Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 149, recorded December 5th, 2013. And this is our 79th 90s episode, and we're finishing off the 80-issue run of Next Generation by DC Comics. Oh, sniff, sniff, sad. Yes, Michael Jan Friedman finishes off with a uh, two-issue story arc. And then once we finish that, uh, we'll do the first issue of the Ill Wind miniseries, also by DC Comics. Right. So we ended Taz uh, a little while back. Now we're ending off TNG, except for the uh, specials. So, end of an era. Right. But what an achievement. It's also an achievement. Sure. Yes, it is. In our ongoing quest. For the most part, the 80 issues... uh, I think there was more hits than misses. I would agree with that. I like this series better than um, probably any of the other ones we've done uh, from a publisher, uh, except maybe uh, ongoing. Right. No, I, I liked it. I also I have a soft spot for the Taz um, movie era mm-hmm. um, that DC Comics did, so... Right. It's a toss-up between this and that because those are the ones that I read when I was a kid. So those are the ones that I have the uh-huh. most there you go uh, attachment to. Sure. Plus, excellent writers. Yep. The the Marvel stuff that we'll get into eventually, um, I have not read as much because, you know, you're a young adult. You're not gonna go comic book store. You know, you think you've outgrown that, and then it's not until you get a little bit older that you realize. That stuff was awesome. What was I thinking? Exactly. <laughs> Pull your head out of your posterior and buy those books. Exactly. Who cares what people think? Exactly. You know that you're cool. <laughs> or not, but you don't care. <laughs> uh, nothing personal. Okay. Yeah, so actually we're doing three issues. Uh, we haven't done three issues in one episode since, uh, you know, what, what episode 143 when we did ongoing. So it's... A little tough to get back into uh, get back on the that mindset voice. that we're we're doing three a week, three a week, three a week. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a little nicer having the uh, two a week, but we we have a lot to cover, so right. got to keep up the pace. With that, um, I think you have the the honor of synopsizing uh, issue number seventy nine. Yes, I do. It is titled "Artificiality." Published date is January nineteen ninety six. Creative team includes. Writer Michael Jan Friedman, penciler Gordon Purcell, inker Terry Pallet, colorist Gene D'Angelo, letterer Chris Elipolis, editors Margaret Clark, and Dana Curtin. The cover presents half of Q's face, which dominates the left third. He is looking to the right, where Picard, Riker, Worf, Dr. Crusher, and Deanna's heads are placed. However, Picard and his senior staff look funny. Pasty white faces with golden eyes. They all look like Data. 
More Q meddling in this issue, no doubt. The issue opens as an Enterprise away team is attempting to beam out survivors of a Tarakan merchant ship whose warp core has developed a breach. Radiation off the crippled ship's warp core is forcing members of the away team to find and facilitate the transport of surviving Tarakan crew members. In the midst of the mission, an explosion occurs which kills crewman Kendra Novak. Data, Riker, and the rest of the crew can do nothing but witness a hero's death. In particular, Novak reaches out to Data to save her. Later, on the holodeck, Picard is presiding over Novak's funeral. He is applauding Novak's sense of duty, her self-sacrifice that, in the end, led to her death so that so many others may live. Picard mentions Novak's many friends, and in particular, Mr. Data. He says how he wishes they could all be as durable as Mr. Data, so that none of them need die. He says that will never happen, of course, since they are all just flesh and bone, and nothing can change that. Unfortunately for Picard and the crew, Q is attending the funeral too, and overhears Picard's lament. With a devious twinkle in his eye, a transformation comes over them all, except for Data. Picard's final words for Kendra Novak are kind, but a bit clinical. As his skin and eyebrows change color, Picard matter-of-factly states that he has been transformed into an android. Riker states that they all have. Dr. As Dr. Crusher clinically states that it is not clear what agency is responsible for their transformation, Q steps out of the woods behind Picard and states, Come now, you must have some idea. After all, how many omnipotent beings do you know? Picard objects to Q transforming them again. Their transformation to Klingon was bad enough, but this? Q tells Picard he merely granted Picard's wish to have a crew as durable as Mr. Data. Q says he knows Picard did not literally mean it, but if Q is anything, he is an overachiever. A message comes from the bridge saying that they are receiving a distress call from the Federation Mining Colony on Aurelia 7. They need medical aid immediately. Immediately Picard asks if Q is behind the distress call, to which Q says unfortunately he is not, though that would have been a nice touch if it was. Picard responds to the bridge, and at first telling them Warp 9 to the mining colony. Then changing speed to warp 5 to stay in alignment with the new regulations he helped to write. But if it is an emergency, regulations do permit them to travel at warp 9. Mr. Data helps Picard out of his indecision, stating that the situation is enough of an emergency for warp 9. Mr. Data notices more indecision on Picard's part, and then suggests that the crew expects him to be on the bridge. He goes with some hesitation out the holodeck exit. On the bridge, Riker states how different being an android is. All the processing power of the ship's computer, yet mobile. All of this information at his fingertips to call upon. He asks Mr. Data what has stopped him from proclaiming his superiority all these years. Data states it was not hard, given he never thought of himself as being superior. 
Data makes a personal log entry stating his crew members' transformation into androids have made their behavior unpredictable. He will keep an eye on them until this can all be resolved. Geordi becomes preoccupied with performing self-diagnostics on his android body, believing there is something wrong with it, something he can fix. In his quarters, Worf is taking down his batleth and other symbols of Klingon culture that all come down to aggression and violence. He does not understand why, in the past, he chose so many aggressive actions when so many logical alternatives were available. In stellar cartography, Picard is alone, looking into infinity and thinking about all the options available to him now. So much data, so many options. When he was human, he was able to make the correct decision almost always based on far less information and processing power. He had some facility that now eludes him. Q appears in the constellations on the walls at first, then comes down in a DS9 style uniform. Q says he is surprised Picard finds something lacking in his new form. He challenges the new android Picard to continue to boldly go where no one has gone before. He says he is shining a new light on Picard and humanity. A new mirror is being held up for Picard to gaze upon. Data enters stellar cartography, and Q exits the room dramatically. Later, Data ponders how the crew is still coming to grips with their android forms. Data has had decades of life with biological life forms to shape his behavior, but they are awkwardly learning. Picard orders Data to put Dr. Sung's emotion chip into him. Picard believes that through that chip, he can regain what he has lost in his transformation into an android. Data does not think that is a good idea due to the fact that it will likely overload Picard's neural net, but he will not disobey a direct order. He goes to take the chip out of its display tube, but Q comes out of the wall and prevents Data from using it. He scolds Picard for cheating. Picard turns and exits the room, proclaiming flatly the emotion chip is no longer an option. For once, Data is thankful to Q for his intervention. They arrive at Aurelia 7. Dr. Crusher and Riker lead an away team to the surface. The colony's doctor recognizes them as androids immediately. Dr. Crusher tells him her status as an android makes no difference as to their mission. Quickly, android Dr. Crusher concludes they are affected by a slow-acting virus that is potentially deadly. Data notes some of the afflicted colonists are in great pain. They need relief by painkillers of some kind. The doctor says she had not thought of that. She tells Data to do that if he wishes, while she returns to the ship uh, with her samples. Data is shocked by her indifference to her patient's immediate condition while she focuses on the long-term goal of a cure. As Riker, Troy, Geordi, and Data continue their investigation of the colony, Deanna says she can still receive the emotional impressions of the people around her, but she can no longer interpret them. How intriguing! They find the colony's computers and their backups have all failed recently. Only fragments of information are available. Data is able to determine a transportation vessel visited the colony nearly a month ago. Later, Data reports back to Picard in his ready room. Picard says he has so much data to work with 
that he sees so many potential ways forward, too many for him to choose from. Picard asks Data for his input as to a potential way forward. Dr. Crusher enters the room, stating that no known cure exists for the virus that the mining colonists are experiencing. Q pops into the room dressed as a Shakespearean character, likely Prince Hamlet juggling four Yorick skulls. Data points out that Q is in the room, but Picard does not seem to care, as Dr. Crusher states unemotionally that there is no known cure, so the colonists will die. There is nothing they can do to prevent it. Q is having a stellar day. To be continued. I love that last um, that last shot with Q having his fingers through the eye sockets of the skull and things like that. Oh yeah, like almost looking a little bit like a puppet. Right. Right, and then the jaws down like ah. Yes. Exactly. Yes, a flair for the dramatic. So. What do you think? Greatness? I wouldn't say greatness. Um, it, it's kind of a... Well, it's funny how they did that Klingon one before. And mm-hmm. Q did the same kind of thing, turned everybody into Klingons, and just watched what happened. Watched the wacky right. wacky stuff happen. And so now, um, I guess Friedman just said, hey, let's do it with Data. Right. Yeah, so that was issues 33 and 34, I think. Oh. So that means 50, 50 issues ago, you did the same story where Picard wishes everybody was as fierce as a Klingon. And boom, everybody was a Klingon. And then the same exact story. I just don't get it. Right. I mean, At least they it, reference it. but Yeah. Yeah, at least they acknowledge the fact that they're using the same formula again. Uh, but, you know, Data, quite different from Worf. So this is a new... A new path to explore just doesn't turn out to be entertaining enough. Right. That is the question. And my answer is no. Because <laughs> <laughs> of course you've read both, as I as I have, and um, you know I've read I've read worse, right. but yeah, it'd be better if it was better. But. So if you remember, I didn't like the Klingon issue because. Everybody suddenly became, you know, their beliefs changed. Not necessarily they were more aggressive because, you know, Klingons are, or, you know, are more aggressive species or whatever. But they also, their beliefs changed that they, you know, they wanted to inflict pain on people. They wanted to inflict pain on themselves while they're in surgery and things like that. Right. Which is, which I did, I had a hard time with because just because you're a Klingon doesn't mean, you know, that your whole, Beliefs, your whole life has suddenly changed, right? Yep. Um, whereas here, everybody still has their same beliefs that they always had, just now However, they process them a little differently. Which I actually like this this story better in that regard. So if if this was the the issue fifty issues ago, I probably would have liked it, but because it's you know after the Klingon one, I, I have a hard time buying that yeah. they did it again. Right. Yeah, this one might have been handled a little better, but, um, I mean, Dr. Crusher, yes, Data's had a lot more time to get used to this and to emulate the human behavior that he, that he has been observing for all these years, but just, and the thing is, you, you forget with Data, a lot of things Data does is just mimicking. Right. But you hope some of what he's doing isn't all just mimicking. 
that he really has developed some weird android form of compassion or something. Um, because Crusher has completely lost it. I mean, mm-hmm. it is gone. I mean, she might remember what she was like before, but not only is her compassion as a doctor, which is incredibly important, gone, but she doesn't care. And uh, it's, it's similar with Troy. I mean, Troy analytically says, oh, I can still read people's emotions, but I really can't interpret them. How interesting. So, right. you, you recall, there was an episode where Deanna had lost her ability to, uh, to do the feelings thing. Right. And she was very on, on I mean, she was really bummed because she thought she was useless. She couldn't mm-hmm. do her job if she didn't right. have that. But, right. And she was really bummed. But here, she doesn't care. I mean, so, you know... So, well, and I like the way they do Troy. Maybe more in the next issue, so we're spoiling a little bit. But I liked the Troy storyline. She yeah. can still feel the emotions. She just no longer is able to process right. the cons. The concept. Right. Yeah. No frame of reference. Right. Right. Even though she has memories of having emotions, but she just can't process them anymore. Right. Or really, you know, know their their full weight. Right. I really liked that. I thought that yeah. was a, a good way. The tro- the the Crusher one, I'm I'm with you. I don't understand why she's so uncaring. I mean, I yeah. get that you know she scans them, and maybe not thinking of, you know, I don't know. You think that even an android, a robot doctor would still give you some you know morphine to help with the pain or whatever, or at, at least acknowledge. Or read a data, <laughs> you know, just just go back through her data files and say, what do you do when people when people are in pain? <laughs> oh, you give them morphine or whatever the right. modern or the future equivalent is. Exactly. I mean, you think at least that much she she'd be down with, but it doesn't even occur to her. Right. Right. Which I had a hard time with. I mean, even yeah. the the incredibly emotionless, you know, doctor robots in the Star Wars universe, you know, they they were still, you know. Giving Luke a little bit of uh, painkiller while he after, while he was recouping from the Wampa attack <laughs> and mean, the back to bath, exactly. Or whatever. Right. So I mean, and those robots are as as cold and sterile as a robot you can get, you know. And, and at least there, they don't seem incompetent as doctors. Where <laughs> she kind of is in the story, and I didn't really yeah. care for that part. Right. You're not going to get bedside manner much, but at least they'll know how to administer painkillers. Right. Yeah. And, uh, well, it's more of the next issue, so I'll, I'll hold on to more of my thoughts on Crusher after we get to 80. Right. Uh, and, of course, Picard's conundrum, having so many options, um, so much data to process, uh, but, but not being able to apply a, a proper algorithm with all his processing power to try to come up with some kind of optimal decision. I found that a little... On the one hand, I, I understood the loss of his intuition, mm-hmm. uh, which is incredibly important with decision makers. But still, I mean, decisioning systems are here today that are able to weigh some set of criteria uh, for an optimal outcome. I mean, even if it may not factor in human concerns, I mean, you can still apply an algorithm and come up with what a weighted average says is the right thing to do. Um, but Picard didn't even seem to have that much going for him. Right. Which I was kind of I was kind of finding hard to believe considering all the processing power supposedly that Data has in his neural net. But, eh. 
Right. Yeah, I, I agree. And he makes them even, you know, he's even, he seems almost gullible, especially in the next issue because of yeah. his inability to make a decision. Right. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't care for that. Yeah. yeah. Everybody seems quite willing to, to have data make the decisions. Yeah, well, and that's just weird because they're just like, oh yeah, data, whatever, whatever you say, we'll do. Yeah, you know, it's just they should still have opinions of their own, and obviously they do, but they just don't ever act on them. Right. Or when they do act on them, like Crusher, they're just, I'm going back to the ship, must recharge. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, so. Same thing with the Klingons, uh, this Klingon episode issue, whatever it was, where we thought maybe like a fish or something looked like it was a Klingon fish. Um, are, <laughs> they're on page 17. Are we supposed to believe that those are android dogs? Yes. I believe okay. you are supposed to believe that. Yes. Yeah, so why would their fur change color? I. Or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, why do people's uh, skin change color? I don't I, know. I would buy that the dog's skin would change color. But not his fur, because you know Picard's still white-haired. Troy still has well, her hair. Okay, I mean, well, they didn't change hair color. Well, you, you're actually bringing up an interesting point, uh, and something I brought up, I brought up more in the next issues comments. But I mean, eye color too. Depending upon which page you're looking at or which cover you're looking at, the androids' eyes are gold yellow kind of thing, or mm-hmm. sometimes they're blue, or you know, sometimes they're dark. It's like it's all over the map. Um, and if you take a look at both issues, I mean, you see how inconsistent they are. Right. Which is was a little a little annoying. Uh, but, you know, everybody's skin changed color. Um, but right. you're right. Uh, Picard's hair is still white. Right. So yeah. I, I don't think the dogs should be tan- uh, yellow. Uh, well, they're white, aren't they? Or whatever the dog was. Yeah, well, they got two dogs there, and they both look predominantly just white. Well, they're the same skin tone as everybody else, so their data skin tone. Well, what, well okay, dogs. but 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 that depend again. That depends upon the page, because if you look at, um, we're, we're we're splitting hairs here, so <laughs> I don't I don't want to dwell too long on here. Right. But if you look at page sixteen and see what what Picard's skin color is mm-hmm. next to uh, John Delancey character. Right. Uh, and then you look across the page on the uh-huh. you know opposite page, and you see the you see Data's color, which is lighter than Picard's. You think uh, so? I think it looks the same. N- n- no. Well, okay. okay. I I don't want it to take too long on this, but <laughs> I mean, so even on page sixteen, if you look at there there at the top of the page, on the right there is Picard, and then he's a, he is one color. And then you look at the one directly beneath uh, the next panel down, and he's a more yellow color. Right. And then you look across at Data, and yeah, Data is more the color that Picard is in the upper panel on the other page, but definitely lighter than Picard on the on the on the lower panel. If you well, we're, right. we're, we're yeah, I, I, anyway. I mean, so so the shades are all kind of like quite a bit of variance. Yeah, it's just weird that Worf is still a darker. Dark. You know, right. he's he's not quite his normal color, but he's still darker. Yep. And yet, Mott, who's normally blue, is data skin colored. Right. There on page seventeen, so he right. completely changed, same hue as everybody else. 
Right. But War still gets to retain his perfect tan. Yeah. Oh, but Jordy doesn't have his perfect tan. Uh, nope. He didn't. He lost it. Yeah, he he's data like now. Well, actually, uh, aside from the cover, it looks like Worf did too. Now that I'm looking at the pages, I was basing most of that on the the cover. Yeah. Okay. Let me look around. Uh, the cover definitely he's still dark. Right. But maybe they yes. didn't want to give it away just yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Anyways, you're right. We're splitting hairs, but one thing about coloring that that I think we can agree they did wrong is on page right. 16, Data wearing the red uniform instead of the gold. Oh, and it, hap- it happens multiple times. It happens in this issue and next issue, right? That's what I mean. Yeah, right. So it's like, did so you make you make a coloring error on one person in both on issues. One page. On one right. page, right. on both issues. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so, so he, he's the right color. His uniform's the right color the majority of the time. But you know, in in two different spots, you know, one in each issue, he he's red colored, which is command. And it's like, did they? Is that just? Is that just like mistakes? I gotta believe that. Or are they trying to say something? I don't know that he's in command now. I don't know. Yeah, no, because. I mean, I, I, that's what I thought, especially in the next issue, because it seemed like yeah. I'm in control now. And then, but he so still has the red same uniform. Num- he has the same number of pips. And then in the next page, he's back to yellow. So exactly, it was I error. was thinking the same thing. So. I, I was thinking the same thing. Data was like taken over or something, so he had a different uniform. Yeah. I mean, I only really had like three comments in the whole issue. Oh, okay. Well, all right. I have two more. Um, Do it. One, Jordy experimenting on himself. Uh huh. It's gonna sound weird, but. It reminded me of Scooby-Doo, the movie. <laughs> okay. Because in the movie Scooby-Doo, there's a scene where everybody's brain gets switched into another one's body. And, and oh. uh, Fred's brain gets put into Daphne's body. Right. And so, you know, there's Daphne with Fred's brain. And she's, he, she, whatever she is, is trying to look down her shirt and things like that, that... You know, suddenly the body that they're in is more interesting than the rest of the world around them. Uh-huh. And so uh, when Jordy is just like, you know, kind of ignoring everything else that's going on so that he can play with a gizmo on his arm, made me think of that scene with, uh, huh. you know, you're in a new body and instead of paying attention to what else is going on, you, you're more interested in the differences. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I, and in the next issue, Data Ventures. A theory about Jordy's preoccupation, and that's and I agree with that. And I, so it seems like he's doing all that because something seems amiss, and he doesn't know what it is, but he's going to do a diagnostic until he finds out what that thing is amiss. Right. And uh, and he's I really focused I, I on agree that with life. Data's. Yeah, I agree with Data's theory that we find out in the next issue. Well, right. It's the same thing I thought. And then my last comment is this: this woman who dies at the beginning, uh, right. Kendra. Her, I mean, the name it, sounds familiar. Yeah, I was going to ask you if she's somebody that we're supposed to know because on that first page, I mean, she's kind of looking at data. You could tell she's kind of got the high for him. Exactly right. But uh, that's not she the reaches? name of his girlfriend or the the one episode where he had a girlfriend, is it? Right. I I, I didn't think so. Besides, by the end, she was kind of disillusioned with him. Right, but her name was Desora, wasn't it? Uh, it could be. 
Because she showed up a few other times here in the comic books, and yeah, I thought that was her name. So I don't know who this Kendra is. I don't know either, but it does sound familiar. Okay. All right. That was my last comment. Oh, and also, just the beginning of this ep- issue was really confusing. I had to actually go back and pull up uh, 77 just to think maybe I'd forgotten that we were left on a cliffhanger. You know, because it's been so long since we did that one. Right. You didn't have that problem. You were just like, oh, yeah. No. I was like, no, new one. <laughs> Reset. Reset button. Got another one. All right. Fair enough. That's my last comment. Anything else? Nope. Ready for the next one to find out what happens to our Android crew. Yes. So not only is this the end of the uh, Android story arc, but it's the end of the series. So this is issue number 80, entitled The Abandoned. Came out February of 1996. All the writing and art staff is the same, so I won't cover that. Uh, the cover shows Picard standing and looking straight at the reader. His face is blank and devoid of any type of emotion. Around him, we see dozens of angry men and women, and some are even clawing at his clothing. So again, he's completely emotionless amongst the sea of rage. Um, he does not look like an android. So um, I'm assuming he's supposed to be one, but he's colored normally. His eyes may be a little greenish-yellow, but aside from that, he looks normal. So the story does not pick up immediately where 79 ended. So any hope of seeing Picard actually interact with Data there in the ready room, playing around with the skulls, are dashed. Uh, Instead, we pick up sometime later as Crusher and Riker are explaining to the colonists that they have Menal Tazrin. And it's a fatal disease with no known cure. The colonists do not take this news easy. But the now emotionless Crusher and Riker are unaffected by the grief on everyone's faces. Data asks Riker if he can continue to scan the computers to find out why so much of the data is now missing. Riker sees no point in it, but he does authorize it anyway. Back on the Enterprise's holodeck... Troy is reliving her most emotional events. She sees the time her father promised he would return before he went off on a mission and died. We also see a young Riker tell her that he cannot live without her. Her new android mind does not have any way of registering these emotions, even though she remembers having emotions during these events. Back in sickbay, Data asks Crusher why she is not uh, continuing her investigation on a cure. She claims that there is no cure, so it would be fruitless to try and discover something that does not exist. He takes it upon himself to investigate the disease on his own. In the conference room, Picard informs the leaders of the colony that there's no cure for this disease. But the Enterprise will transport them to a nearby starbase so that they can have the best care until the end. The leader is upset that they are not going to be cured, but he seems okay with traveling to the starbase. Once the leaders are gone, Q pops out of the wall and tells the captain that his current decision will cost the lives of everyone on the starbase since they will also become infected by the virus. Picard then catches up with the leaders and informs them that they're actually going to be transported back to the planet and Picard is going to quarantine the whole planet. 
The leader is really not happy about this now, and he threatens Picard that he's brought this upon himself, and he storms into the turbo lift. Data meets up with Geordi in engineering. The chief engineer is still tinkering around with his new cybernetic body. He tells Data that he knows something's missing, but all the diagnostics tell him that everything's normal. Data speculates that it is Geordi's emotions that are missing, and he leaves his friend to investigate further. In the transporter room, the colonists are about to step onto the transporter pad when one of them is able to slip a electro-stimulator on the back of the transporter officer's neck. The officer falls to the ground. This stimulator seems to have shorted his circuits. On the bridge, Worf informs the captain that there's been an explosion in the school area. Security rushes to investigate, but they find no explosion. Everyone on the bridge seems surprised that there would be such a glitch in the system. Worf then informs the captain that there has been multiple transports up from the surface. Picard deduces that this must be another glitch since he has not authorized any such transport. Elsewhere on the ship, dozens of colonists have beamed up and are taking over the ship one room at a time. All of the people seem to have these stimulator patches and they're slapping them on the neck of every crewman that they find. Suddenly, Data arrives in his red tunic. He informs the colonists that the gig is up. They try the stimulator trick, but he's already aware of that, and he steps aside. At phaser point, he asks them all to step down. Soon, Picard, Worf, and a security team arrive and asks Data what happened. Data is now wearing his gold tunic again, and he tells the captain that these are not colonists at all. They're actually pirates. He also knows that they are from a certain area in space uh, due to the virus is actually a treatable version of Mina Tarson and not the fatal one that Crusher thought it was. And he knows that this is only from a certain area in space due to one of the downloaded memories from a colonist on Omicron Theta. Uh, This is one of the few references to the fact that he is supposed to have all the memories of those colonists uh, before the crystalline entity destroyed them. So the pirate leader does not dispute these claims. He tells the crew that the rest of the pirate fleet has the real colonists and that they were planning to sell them into slavery. He tells them that their hope was that the Federation starship would arrive, take the fake colonists, and cure them. Later on the bridge, Data informs the captain that they've found the pirate fleet. The pirates start to attack the Enterprise, and Picard allows Worf and the other bridge crew to use their super-fast android reflexes to quickly knock out all of the pirate ships. Riker and a team beam over to one of the ships, and he beams the captured colonists back to the Enterprise. Riker is able to take control of the whole fleet by only firing on one pirate, and then all the rest surrender. Later still, Q arrives to the bridge. He informs Picard that they all saved the day with their android bodies, despite all of the shortcomings they had due to not being used to the situation. Q returns them back to human, and Picard points out that it was actually Data who saved the day. He was used to being 
emotionless, and he was able to process the situation and emulate the humans enough to discover the root cause of the troubles and find solutions. Q tells him that he does not know when they will meet again, since they will not be meeting again in a DC comic book. And then he vanishes. Boof. Picard also talks about how their adventures are far from over, even though this comic series is the end. Bravo. Bravo, comic series. I kind of like that last part where, you know, they're pretty much saying that uh, <laughs> the comic's over, but the adventures will continue. I, I yeah. thought that was good. Yeah, and, and I guess they want to do something a little special. But it's kinda it's kinda schmaltzy, the last page. <laughs> I'm a I'm a little torn on it. So the last page is basically a, a giant pinup, could be a poster, and it's uh Picard's face and he's saying, you know, pretty much what I just said. But then it has a picture of the Enterprise and then the rest of the crew are at the bottom and then it has in giant letters for it is our mission to boldly go where no one has gone before. I liked it. I thought it yeah. was good. Yeah. And then on Worf's chest it says never never the end never the end never the end yeah and then the never is in parentheses so it's supposed to say the end but in parentheses never so I liked it yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah except yeah. Crusher for some reason looks like she might have been hit with a shovel or something and is a little cross-eyed <laughs> and there's little birds flying around her head <laughs> and she's just a little loopy yeah exactly <laughs> so I wonder yeah. if they tacked this on at the end or if they knew all along that this was going to be the last issue oh well well I think I mean, when they produced it they probably knew it was going to be the last issue but. oh yeah yeah when they produced it but you yeah. know these things are sometimes made you know months before so oh written right yeah. oh yeah long before they actually start creating them so didn't necessarily know the batting order right yeah, yeah possible so, anyways, so what'd you think of the uh, the resolution? Uh, I was I, I knew something was going on, but I didn't realize I really didn't realize that they were pirates. Har. So <laughs> that was a little a little surprising for me. Although I will say that the beginning, uh, when you when they first got to the colony, and and the one guy looked pretty normal, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other guys, like on the on like the first page where Riker's on the planet uh, and Dr. Crusher and stuff, and they're talking to the administrator guy, and he looks normal. But the guy right to his right, with the green and yellow striped shirt and and the and the high jack boots and stuff, is like, oh, he's wearing an odd outfit. <laughs> I mean, for a mining colonist, a bit a bit flouncy, a little little colorful. But I figured that maybe just the way they did things in this particular right. issue. Um, so I was a little surprised, but then, um, yeah, but then when they, and then at first when the, when the pirate guy with the long white hair is just, you know, just starts telling them everything that's going on and this is everything that went on. And it's like, uh, well, it's a good thing that, uh, that you're sick and you'll die if they don't help you. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause otherwise you sound like an idiot just. Telling every you know, telling the whole game plan, but it was okay. It was fine. Yeah, it was fine. Yeah, I, I, the pirate thing I liked. I actually thought that was kind of interesting that yeah. you know, they couldn't heal themselves, but they thought that if they 
could trick a, a Federation ship into curing them. Right. Um, I, I thought it was actually kind of an interesting yeah. scheme. Yep. But uh, I didn't really care for the, the resolution where, you know, the whole thing has been Picard not being able to make a decision because there's too many variables and he can't process it. But then Worf and the the you know navigator and stuff once he lets them loose at the end saying you know fire at will and use your robotic super speed yeah they don't have any problem making decisions that that are all the right decisions because they're able to process it with their android calculating minds uh-huh yep seemed uh seemed convenient. a little odd <laughs> a little convenient <laughs> so so you yeah. like the the Jordy thing though well, I don't know about liking it, but I mean, I thought that I just said when Jordy was originally diagnosing himself, diagnosing himself like crazy, it's like there's something wrong here, and it's like, well, you're not human anymore. I mean, you don't have emotions or anything. Come on, is that obvious, Jordy? No, I, I thought that might have been why he thought there was something wrong with him, mm. which seemed kind of obvious to me, but whatever. Or it should have been obvious to Jordy. All right. Yeah. I, I get in hindsight I, I think that I should have gotten that but um, you know I was just thinking that you know he's an engineer you know he may not feel comfortable poking around data you know to satisfy his curiosity maybe right. but then suddenly when it's him and he could just you know open up his own arm to to see what's inside figure it out that, that that's what he was doing so yeah I, I didn't see the whole I'm missing emotions so something's you know, I'm hollow inside kind of thing. Oh. I didn't see that as being... Well, and did did Jordy actually admit that that's it? No. I don't recall. Mm-hmm. So you could be right. But no, no I, I, think, I think you're right. I think I think you're right. I think Data was right that that's what they're implying. Right. Yep. Well, Data saves the day. I thought it was kind of convenient. Another thing is I th- thought, that, you know, originally these are miners. And then one of the miners is able to come up with a little chewing gum size electronic device that deactivates androids. Yeah, and they like, just ha- happen say, well, to have it. How, how handy! <laughs> Boy, you you shouldn't be working in a mining cal- c- colony, my friend. Uh, so so when we find out that they're actually pirates, it's like, okay, okay. Mm, so they do more devious things, but still... That seems like a tech, uh, a technological uh, handy thing to whip up. Agreed. Uh, yeah. And to have so many of them, because they could slap that band-aid <laughs> on everybody right. they walk down. Right. Yeah. And I'm assuming they can throw it on the little android dogs that, that sick on. <laughs> <laughs> they come up wagging their tails, you know, trying to get pet. It's like, ah, one for you. Yeah. Deactivate the dog. Unlimited yeah, when numbers. when I first saw the uh, the thing and I hadn't actually read the bubbles yet, I thought, oh my, are they gonna actually put an off button on the back of these androids? Really? Yeah, that's what I thought too. Uh, yeah, because I, I knew data. I know data has an has an, has an off button, as yeah. we discovered in an episode, and only Doctor Crush knows what that is. But um, I was uh, it was like, oh, you're not gonna do that, are you? And then I mean, at least they made it some kind of little. Uh, electro electrostatic something thing that fries your circuits, right? Yeah, but, but it still seems too much for a a pirate to have yeah. something like that when yep. 
all the big bad villains that Data's ever come across, nobody else has ever tried to slap that mandate on the back of the day. <laughs> right. But it was convenient for the story, so there you go. Sure, sure. I thought Riker's uh, uniform on page four was interesting, you know, in the past. Oh, right. So, Is it yellow? Is it the yellow well, uniform? It's, it's purple. It's black. Well, actually, it looks oh, it's to a, me... Oh, it's that uniform. Well, well, okay. But we do we know that for sure? I mean, they didn't actually say... Lit- okay, when you look at the uniform, it's got purple shoulders, but it reminds me of the Deep Space Nine uniforms that eventually Next Gen switched over. Um, so that's what it reminded me of, which, of course, is a future uniform. But that's like, okay, well, they could have had something similar to that in Starfleet Academy or something. Okay. But... Right. What, yeah, did, it doesn't... Did, did Deanna and him know each other at the Academy? Or was it after he was out of the Academy and a young officer? I thought it was more the latter, but I really don't know. Yeah, I thought he was a young... He, I thought he was a young officer in, in Starfleet when they were dating. I agree with that. Okay, so... So we're on the same of the same mind with that. So that so that wouldn't have been a Starfleet uh, a, um, Starfleet Academy uniform then. No. So yeah, I think it's supposed to be black and red, but but the shading because of the shadow, maybe they well, didn't want it all to blend into a giant black. They made it kind of a purpley blue. Okay. But even without the even without the color, which is whacked. I mean, nobody has purple that I remember. Right. Uh, in their uniforms. Um, but e- even the style of it just reminds me a lot of the, the 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 uniforms they'll be going to next in the future. Right. So. Yeah. No. Right, I see what you're that. saying, but but it's kind it, of odd. Well, yeah. don't you think that looks like the Deep Space Nine uniforms? Voyager the, uniforms? No, I, I don't. Really? No, because okay. they it doesn't seem to have that plunging neckline like like those do. Okay. Well. Yeah, it's yeah. But I mean, but, the picture's so tiny; it, it it's hard to tell. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, so I thought it was kind of interesting. But I do like that shot with them kissing and has the hearts and stuff floating around. And but she, <laughs> but the android Deanna is not able to feel any of that. You see the little broken heart around her because she's uh-huh. not able to comprehend <laughs> or you know feel those emotions again. Yeah, I, I really me, like. The yeah, it's reminding me a bit of like a, an Archie comic, but yeah. Well, you really hate Archie. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's cute. It communicates what it... The, the drawing communicates what it's supposed to communicate. And generally speaking, I, I think the artwork's pretty good. Yeah, for the most part. You know, it, it may not be the watercolor gorgeousness <laughs> that uh, some other comics could be, but it's pretty good. And I think it's a lot better than we're going to get in the next issue. But... Yeah, it's just uh, Q does not look like John Delancey like half the time. Yeah. He often looks nothing like John Delancey. Oh, really? Often? Uh, yeah, uh, at times. Show me yeah. where he... Okay. All right, so at the beginning when he pops out of the uh, wall, I'll agree with you that he looks like John Delancey there. Uh, I think on page... This is towards the end, by the way. I think... Okay, so on page 22, 
at the bottom, not the best John Delancey at all. I'll agree with that. Yet on the opposite page, on page 23, I think that's a very good John, John Delancey. Uh, right. On the right. So where it's kind of a close-up, he's, his face has taken up most of that panel. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very good John Delancey, but I do agree it's it's uneven. Yeah, so look at page 8, the last eight. panel on page 8, Okay. Page where he's eight. on the view screen, and it looks like maybe the Joker. <laughs> that Joker! Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's not too good. <laughs> I agree with that. So, anyways, I don't really have anything else. Yeah, I thought it was kind of cool that Data had a hunch about the computer outage. Mm-hmm. So I like that with his growth, that he's gone far beyond being just a machine. Right. Which is kind of cool. So he can have hunches. Um, so I, I, I kind of like that. So uh, he's definitely, you know, the robot that uh, that went, be- went beyond being Pinocchio. So that's good. Right. Especially compared to all of his, uh, his Android crewmates. So. Right. But they just—they're—they're they're brand new. They don't have any. Context. They haven't. They haven't done the uh, learning yet. So obviously, Data has gone far beyond his original programming. So he was programmed to be a thinking, learning machine, also. So that's cool. So he's had what? 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 Three decades? Has he been around? Yeah. Something. something. Twenty-five, thirty years, something. I don't know. So I didn't cool. read. I didn't read the young adult novels that that covered his uh, his turning on and Starfleet Academy days. Yeah, well. Okay, so so obviously the main point of this was that he is a learning machine and he was able to be much more flexible and figure out and save everything at the end where everybody else must be at the beginning of their programming. Right. And haven't learned much yet. I, I did there like I did like, you know, in regards to his coming online and, and being what he is. I did like they actually referenced that he did have the, all the colonist memories and stuff downloaded right. to him. Right. Because, you know, that's like a throwaway line there in the Crystalline Entity episode. Right. Uh, that you don't... I don't I don't know if it's ever referenced again. I don't think it this. is. So that's kind of cool that they, uh, they pulled that out. Yeah. I was I was really impressed when I read that. I was like, oh, that's, that's actually pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so obviously you have a pretty good knowledge of the series if you are able to pull out a little tidbit like that, a little piece of trivia, and work right. into the story. That's cool. But that also might have been something that helped him be more human, that he had all those memories or logs or however they, they did it. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's where they were going with it here, you know, to give some sort of context that, you know, he you know has the accumulation of hundreds of people where all these androids only have their one life to think about. Right. I don't know. I, I, I'm speculating. Right. And he's more. He's had more time to do something with it, too. More right. time to incorporate it in. Because obviously, as people, we're around other people all the time and observing their behavior and things like that. But to actually have time to try to incorporate that into your programming, I guess that takes longer. Anyway. So that's it. My my comments are over. All right, cool. Well, that finishes off that series. Aww. But, uh Now we get to do Ill Wind. Yes, so we get to do a mini-series. Uh, I will be doing part one of Ill Wind. 
and it is a four-part miniseries, and is just merely titled Ill Wind, Part 1. Published date is November 1995. Creative team, writer Diane Duane, penciler Daryl Skelton, inker Timothy Tui, colorist Pam Rambo, letterer Chris Elipolis, and the editor is Margaret Clark. The cover is a very nice piece of art that features Picard's head in the upper right-hand portion. To his left is an unidentified humanoid lady's head with very alien-looking clothes on. Her large hat is particularly interesting with an upswept, almost wing-like shape to it. Narrow hallways, beware. This thing is so wide, that's what I'm trying to say. The bottom half shows an unfamiliar spaceship that almost looks like it's insectoid, with two rear fins and three silvery projections coming out of its cylindrical fuselage, almost like wings. The Enterprise arrives at Andrew Star, the site of the bi-yearly Centaurus Cup. This solar sailing competition has many competing ships to see who can harness the star's solar wind to cross the finish line first. The competition seems to have many characteristics in common with today's America's Cup ocean sailing races. The Enterprise has been assigned security duties at the competition. Picard and the crew are fascinated with how these ships can build up impressive speeds using their solar sails that are upwards of a square kilometer in size. Data does not understand the attraction of flying such relatively slow vehicles and the risk inherent that comes with such fragile craft. It all just doesn't seem worthwhile to him. Riker and Picard are fans. Picard has even sailed such ships in years past. One of his many minor interests. He is even up on recent technological advances in the sport like Clisman single crystalline sail masts and monomolecular sheet structures. They spot the Mestral's ship, which is of special interest to their security responsibilities. The leader of Eldelis she refused to give up the risky sport when she took the Mestral's office. Competing factions in her own society have been implicated in interfering with races in the past that she has competed in. The Enterprise is to maintain a discreet but visible presence to discourage such disruptions during this race. They discuss other challenging competitors such as the Ferengi who are highly likely to cheat with gay abandon. The Karagi are an interesting lot who actually hail the Enterprise and attempt to use their own society's warped sense of personal sovereignty to take the win of a race leg under a technicality of the cup rules. Picard handily puts the Karage captain in his place using another technicality that nullifies the Karagi's technicality. Riker brings up the likely mischief to be undertaken as the competitors try to steal each other's technological secrets, possibly with an eye to sabotage. Picard asks Worf to hail the Mistral's ship. An efficient and congenial conversation ensues that ends with Picard inviting the Mistral to the Enterprise that evening for dinner with the other participants. She graciously accepts and returns her attention to her ship that is about to undergo an important calibration. 
After the channel is closed, they comment on the Mistral's strong-willed manner and the fact that she is the absolute ruler of two billion people. So she probably cannot afford to be shy and retiring. Troy mentions how the people of Eldelis have never been a prosperous or peaceful people. Data reviews what is so special about Andrew Starr. It is a flash star whose unpredictable shifts in radiation output can make for some interesting changes in solar wind pressure that can have big effects on solar wind-driven ships. Picard says its unpredictable nature will add spice to the race. Later that evening, a menagerie of competitors of all races are gathered in 10 forward. Picard notices that virtually all the teams seem to be quite competitive and even cutthroat over winning. He bemoans the fact that he has yet to meet a team that is driven purely by the joy of competition. The Karige captain starts a conversation with Picard. He comes right out and attempts to bribe Picard to accidentally move the Enterprise into the race course at the proper time to ensure the Karagi's success. Picard excuses himself and leaves the first six and then seven billion credit bribe on the table. Having failed at bribery, the Karagi captain speaks to his underling of an alternate plan. Riker and Picard speak of the Karagi bribe and how their reception is going in general. They come to the Mistral's table where she is discussing the fact that their support vessel is off getting repairs. It will return the day after tomorrow, but they have arranged for another of the competitors' vessels to take on their spare parts. They will even render aid if needed. The Mistral speaks of how there are some parts of her eraser that cannot be replaced, but she certainly can. There are multiple relatives of hers that are Mistral's in training. One of her cousins, in fact, is back on Eldelis, temporarily ruling in her place until she returns. In the course of conversation, they discover that Mistral was a scholar of literature when she quotes a poem of Lord Byron referring to the sea. They also find out her consort, Rav, is a mathematician who is not much into literature. When the captain discloses he has been a fairly accomplished solar sailor himself, he and the Mistral start speaking one-on-one -on -one about solar sailing technical details. He asks about the high-tech Klisman struts and is surprised when the Mistral tells him they are a waste of time. They tend to lock up at high temperatures and you can't do anything with them. At least the traditional mechanical struts can be worked with from outside the ship when they freeze up. She will have them ripped out and replaced with traditional struts when they return home. She says quite clearly that she has gone outside of the ship herself to effect repairs. Picard is shocked and means to chastise her for taking such risks, but does not get the chance. She raises her glass as if to do a toast and says she will avoid unnecessary risks, but she will revel fully in the necessary ones. Riker and Picard part company with the Mistral and her consort. Riker sees the concern on Picard's face. The captain mentions the Starfleet reports on all the assassination attempts on the Mistral. A formidable woman, but one that lives life too much on the edge. 
Later, Riker and Data speak to Troy about what she has been able to pick up from their guests. She says nothing unexpected. The Alcalman team is thinking seriously about sabotage. The Sinosure crew members is trying to mess with the Kahin navigator's ability to do their job by seducing her. Creative cheating is definitely going on. There is hatred, too, particularly between two subspecies that make up the Loharin crew and the Sosh crew. They both look a bit like Gorns and outwardly look identical, but they consider each other very different and literally hate each other. They almost come to blows until Riker and Worf intercede to distract them from each other. Despite their best efforts, a fight breaks out between them, and Worf has to call in a security detail to break up the fight and escort the combatants to their quarters. With all of this cheating and positioning, Picard bemoans the fact that so few of the competitors seem to be competing for the joy of it. Meanwhile, at the door to an Enterprise shuttle bay, a shadowy figure clad in purple uses an electronic device to gain entry. He moves into a shuttle and plants a device that begins ticking as the figure leaves the area. Back at the party, Picard tells his crew tomorrow will be a busy day. To be continued. Wake up! Wake up! Uh, what? Uh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry about the length. There's a lot of detail going on in this, this issue, which really is very much a setup issue. And I really don't know what's going to be relevant later, so... Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, it is a setup issue, so... And unfortunately, nothing really happens. We had a fight! We had a fight! Breakout of guys that kind of look like Gorns, but they have different outfits. <laughs> hey, traditional right. Gorns, not new reboot Gorns. Right. Yep, you're right. Yeah. So, uh, but that was really it. Yeah, you're right. Well, what about the tortoise people in the background? Like on page 15. I mean, yeah. two tortoise people talking to each other. That. Yes, it was hilarious. That's great. That's. Yeah. Are you really defending the tortoise people? No, I'm not. But, because there's tortoise people, there's cat people, kind of, sort of, cat people. There's, like, bird rooster people. There's, um... Uh, a lot of, they have a, they have to have a lot of aliens in this issue, so I get that. But a lot of them they have based on like like you, like Earth animals, animals, which instead ah, of bumpy headed people, right, right, right. So I mean, uh, of course we know the um, what Carige, uh, Carige. Uh, at least those guys look like aliens, you know, with all the tentacles coming out of their heads that seem to have little eyes at the end. Right. Yeah, they come so, out of their eye sockets, which I thought was interesting. Right. And then they seem to have... Because I mean, they got a lot of these tentacles coming out, and they all seem to have eyes at the tip. But Right. Yeah, so and at they, least, cha- at they least... change in number from panel to panel. <laughs> yeah. But at, at least they look like aliens. Even though they look ridiculous, they look like aliens. I like that better than the all the animal people, aliens. Yeah, it was a little wind in the wind, wind in the willows. Is that what it was? That that old nursery rhyme book that had all the animals. 
having tea and going fishing and things like that. That's what this reminded me of. Oh, Mr. Oh. Toad talking to Mr. Tortoise. <laughs> and over here, uh, the the bird guy is putting the moves on the cat girl, but the cat girl's ovulating, so she will conceive if they <laughs> consummate their relationship tonight. It was just a very odd issue. Yes. And so I defend my my synopsis. I did not include that little bit about the eggs ovulating, at least. So there are some things I cut out. And how did Data know that? How did Data know that? Oh, so that was Data saying that and not Troy? Okay. Yeah. I would think Troy would have a better shot at that, but... Uh... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it was Data. I mean, maybe it was Troy. Yeah, you're right, it was Troy. But still! Yeah, I know. She could just sense people (laughs) ovulating. Uh, She is amazing. And then, do, do cat people not have, you know... Contraceptives, you know. <laughs> just, <laughs> that was just a very odd page. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the salamander person with six arms. Kind of a salamander person, you know. So there were some people kind of in between, but yeah. Yep, a little bit too much like a uh, a nursery rhyme or something. Yeah. So the, the only thing I thought was interesting was the, you know, the sh- wind sailing ship you know that was kind of a reference to Star Trek Deep Space Nine there was that episode where uh, Cisco and Jake create mm-hmm. one of these yep wind sail type ships I thought that was kind of cool to have, bring that back yeah and uh, you know and then the whole bomb thing at the end that was that was when it actually started getting a little interesting oh there's somebody planted a bomb oh it's over <laughs> <laughs> just when it started to get interesting Right. Yeah, but about that bomb, don't you think by the 23rd century or whatever, it shouldn't be ticking? <laughs> well, they have an app for that. It's a ticking app. <laughs> so, so they've got drawn around this device that somebody's planted. Uh, tick, 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 tick. So kudos to get across uh, a feeling of dread and an idea that this is some kind of explosive device. So it did that. It's just that really... Don't you think they have something better than mechanical clocks to uh, act as detonators on bombs by now? Yeah, and the bomb itself just looks like an iPad. So yeah, it's the same thing. It, it, it looks it looks like an iPad with an Elcar's skin or something. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's not like it. You know, it's not the traditional dynamite with a clock on it. It's <laughs> <laughs> right. It it looks like a data pad. Yeah. So who do you think that is? What's your speculation? Oh, well, it's got to be the... Well, I'm thinking it's the right-hand guy to the um, Karigi. Right. So know, but, it, it, but that's kind of obvious, too, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I'm assuming they can tuck in their eye tentacles so that he can have the shape. Because, I mean, it shows him his shadow, and he doesn't have the crazy uh, yeah, but, eye but, tentacles. But he's definitely in shadows, and and I, I think it looks like he's got a hood on or something, like a right. hoodie kind of thing. Yeah. Which and obs- he's big. obscures, yeah. Yeah. Which obscures his uh, features. Right. Yeah. So it could be the Gorn guys. It could be the tentacle guys, because the tentacle guys are pretty big. The Car- Carnegie or whatever. It could be a Carigis. tortoise guy. Could could be a tortoise guy. Hey, basically, they've gone ahead and said that basically just about everybody here is a homicidal maniac. 
who's willing to do just about anything to win. So could be right. anybody. The the only one we can rule out is the six armed salamander guys. Because <laughs> you think even with a hoodie they wouldn't look like that. Right. Well, I mean yeah. they're they're wearing. You, you can see their body, and they're not. They don't have six arms tucked in there. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I, I would tend that, to agree. That, that's the only one I'm giving a pass. I right. think even the, uh, the ovulating cat girl could be in there. Oh. <laughs> yes, with a lot of padding in her outfit. <laughs> Which who knows? Maybe there was padding before, huh? Mm. Just kidding. Uh, I, overall, I, I got to say I'm not crazy about the artwork. It's serviceable. It does the job. But in a lot of places, I think it's rather rough. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ships look okay. But I'm just saying people, some places they look fine. Other places they look kind of rough and without enough detail. Right. Yeah, even the ships sometimes look a little off. Especially yeah. the sailing ships. Like one one panel... You know the the wings are kind of colored, and then the next panel the wings just bleed in with whatever's in the background. So mm. it, it was just kind of uh, that kind of threw me. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the artwork at all in this. Yeah, to tell you the truth. Yeah, especially near the near the middle-ish beginning where they're on the bridge talking about the the sailing competition and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's one in particular where Deanna looks like she's just nothing but nose nostrils. I don't know, that looks very good. Um, uh, is that on page 14? Or actually, no, page 10? Uh, yes, page 10. That's it. <laughs> yep. And at the bottom of that same page, bottom right, data... I don't know what data looks like, but doesn't look much like data. No. But then if you look on page top of page 11, data is all nose nostrils. Yes, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and and it looks like it's a it's a shot... From be- from beneath shooting up, and it looks right. like there's a hole in the ceiling of the bridge. Yeah, yeah. When in actuality, that must be the was it? That's the viewfinder, or I mean, uh, that's the view screen on the top of his head. I don't think so. Ooh, okay. Oh well, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, you're right. He's talking about the the blue pulsar. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. That's supposed uh, to be the view. That's supposed to be the data screen. Right. Okay. Right. Well, but it it looks like a hole in the ship or something. But right. <laughs> Well, he's at the science station and not right. his 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 navigator. Well, no, he is. Hell, I don't know, dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I thought, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so he is at the navigation station. Yeah, he is. Um, but it looks like he's pro- projecting the science station screen up on the on the main view screen. On the main view screen, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, take a look while I explain about this uh, this flare star. Anyway. All right. My last comment is on page nine when it shows the, uh, what is it, Mistral or whatever? The, Mistral. Yeah, whatever. whatever she is. Her ship where yeah. everybody's kind of floating at different, yes. different planes. Yes. I like that too. That looks kind of cool. You liked it. I did not like it. Well, I, I think it looks cool. I just look at think it looks totally impractical. Right. Plus, so, I thought these ships were supposed to be light, as light as you can, and then yeah. this looks very bulky and a lot of, uh, you know, unnecessary chairs floating around. <laughs> and they do look like they're floating, don't they? Right. Um, but, but 
like they're up in the air. So if you need to get out of your chair to say suppress a fire, it's like <laughs> where do you where do you walk? Because like you mentioned, it looks like the the direction of gravity is not clear because everybody is sitting like in different orientations. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, which might be fine for uh, a totally weightless craft, and maybe what they're trying to say that they've got no gravity platings or something in this. I don't know, but looks cool. Don't know how practical though. Yeah, it just looks huge. I mean, it. it that's a very spacious area, and 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 yeah. everybody has these giant chairs. Where in that episode of Deep Space Nine, I mean, that ship was small. It they were just yeah. kind of floating there. There wasn't any, you know, furniture. Sure. And that, if you think about a sailboat, which is yeah. what they're supposed to kind of be analogous to, right? There's not a lot of amenities on those sailboats, you know, that are no. that are going on those races. Probably not. Probably not a John. You got the ocean. Live it up. <laughs> Just uh, well, I mean, like 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 in America's Cup or something. But right. Uh, well, yeah. But uh, if I remember correctly, of that Deep Space Nine episode, that was supposed to be a replica of an early uh, Bajoran solar sailing ship. Right. It so it was, you know, it was purposely a little retro. Which is very interesting. Um, the Planetary Society has launched uh, solar sail experiments in the past. So this is definitely something that's really real. Uh, of course, obviously primitive, but... Now, the solar sail thing, does it actually work? It... Well, uh, supposedly, suppo- theoretically it does, but um, I believe the last thing I read about the uh, experiment that they sent up to the Planetary Society is uh, it, the mission failed, unfortunately. But, but in theory, you know, they, what they want to do is they want to put out basically uh, a deployable sail that's able to... Uh, take the very low pressure w- solar wind pushing outward from the sun and um, and move uh, the, sa- the, the sail outward uh, and Which, supposedly it should work but I, I don't know that a functional one has ever been successfully tested in the real world right now I mean the whole solar solar sail thing I mean if it was truly like a you know solar panel type thing where it was absorbing the energy you know I, I always thought that's what it was um, at first you know the whole idea of a solar cell fanning out that it would you know more surface area you're going to be able to absorb more energy but uh, the idea of pushing a craft with any type of speed just based on light pressure just seems a little far-fetched for me yeah well, it's uh, it, apparently if it's big enough, and definitely it's not meant to be some kind of an electrovoltaic cell or something like that, where you've got a little some electrically generated ion engine out the back pushing. No, right. It's supposed to really be a sail that's supposed to be pushed by uh, by the radiation being shot out into space at all times by the sun. So. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a, it sounds a little far-fetched, but it you know there is pressure developed from the solar wind. It just I think it's a very small amount. So 
Got and the good a thing really about big sale. And the good thing about space is that you know once you start building up any type of speed, you're not going to lose it. Right. Unless you get too close to another gravitational mass, like a planet or something, and then it doesn't matter how fast you're going, you're going in. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes, professor. Yes. But I mean, but I mean, I, I get it. You know, even if you were just going, you know, even if you were just speeding up minutely, eventually that would accumulate to quite a bit of speed because you won't lose it during friction. So. Right. Yep. Just. I don't know. Every time I see something on that, I'm, I just really don't see how it would work. You know, as far as like sending a satellite or something powered strictly on that. Right. Well, as long as you want to go outward, and as long as the sail is big enough. I could see it working, but yeah. Exactly how long would it take for it to really build up speed? Right. Probably quite a while. And then what if there's a solar hurricane and it just rips the sail apart? Oh my god. Then plus there's all kinds of uh, meteorites and things, so you'd have to be able to take some amount of damage. Right. And still be functional. Because you are going to have those little, little micrometeorites going through it like crazy. But it doesn't matter if it's sale or anything. That's gonna it's gonna happen. Yeah, unless of course you have a duratanium hull and shields and deflector grids and blah blah. Yeah, you gotta have the deflector grids for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, do you have any more comments on this issue? Not really. It's 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 a setup issue, so not a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, some interesting stuff, and we've mentioned it. So. Yeah, now the the cover. Time to wrap up. I do want to talk about the cover. I, yes. I love that cover, the Hugh Fleming cover, uh, painted cover. It's very pretty, yeah. quite pretty. Yeah, I enjoy Hugh Fleming's artwork. He he does a lot of uh, Star Wars mm-hmm. stuff, so this is a very you know, Star Warsian type cover. It's very good. I like it. Cool. And uh, lastly, I think I might have in a previous episode talked about the writer of this issue uh, mm-hmm. Diane Duane mm-hmm. uh, she's actually a writer of several Star Trek novels mm-hmm. which which are pretty good um, I, I, I'm thinking that at one point I thought that this that these were written by DC Fontania oh, uh, right. and I might have mentioned that in a previous issue or episode so if I did I want to correct that now it, I meant to say uh, Diane Duane um, not DC Fontania both start with the. What do you want? <laughs> Very different people, though. We've Very realized. different people. Yes. Yeah, the the books I've written, uh, I've read of Diane Duane are, are pretty good. I think she wrote the first Next Generation Mirror Universe book, if I'm not remembering. Huh. If I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Mirror Heart, I believe it was. Hmm. But uh, she's she's good. I like her. So I'm I'm giving the series. You know, I'm, I'm definitely reading it with an open mind, but this first issue was pretty pretty slow. Yeah. Yep. So. But they've definitely uh, populated quite a cast of characters that could end up being um, the murderer in the library. Yeah, with the candlestick. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, and then the costume that she... I don't know if she's going to wear it again, so let me just mention it real quick. I really liked her... The what was her name? Uh, Mestral. Yeah, Mestral. The Mestral. Yeah, her. Which costume, is her title? Yeah. Right, her costume I really like. It looks. 
you know, almost it, avian type <clears throat> head, you know, like owl's head kind of thing coming right. off the top of her head. I mean, yeah. it's a it's a it's a hood, it's a hat, not not real ears. Yeah, I have to preference that, especially in this issue, since there's so many animal creatures. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I liked it. I thought it was a cool look. I mean, you know, she looks very regal walking around in this thing. Uh, she looks very regal. She looks very alien. She almost looks like she would be quite at home in a Thor movie or a comic. Um, <laughs> I was thinking a, a, a Gallifrey type story. A Gallifrey. Oh, there you go. Uh, the Doctor's home planet has the same style with the giant collars kind of thing. Right. Except this is actually on her head, not a, not a collar. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. That was my it's last It's pretty comment. out there. It's pretty over the top. It's interesting. And obviously she does not wear that when she is sailing. No. It wouldn't be practical. She has to sit exactly. in that big lounge Jeez. chair that's floating. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Anything else? Uh, nothing else. Okay. Well, then uh, let's wrap up. Uh, next week we're going to do uh, finish off this Ill Wind miniseries. Sounds uh, good. So it gives us something to look forward to. Exactly. See where all this setup leads. I hope it leads somewhere. Um, I'm sure it will. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. Come back next week to find out the details. See ya. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at star t comicbookreview at gmail.com Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic second name book review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review What you got there?